0: Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I'm good. We're, you know, wrapping up the year. It's a little bit of a slowdown. People are, you know, releasing so much, it would be nice. It's a welcome reprieve. Chance to get back to some of the games we got to play this year. And so let's talk about some of the games. Let's. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We are going to talk about our main review this week, which is Beowulf, the legend. Is he a legend? I think he is. (laughs) (laughs) If he's not, who is? Mark, what did you play this week? We get to play Undaunted
1: Stalingrad. This is by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. It is, as we've commented before, necessarily a campaign system. We now have a tiny peek at what the campaign portends. There are basically two elements of the campaign system. So you start with a game of Undaunted, which, as we've commented many, many times before, is a rock-solid, amazingly simple, and yet immensely gratifying system. And then at the end of the fight, depending on how many casualties you've taken, you're going to downgrade some number of your cards, Typically, so far as what we've experienced, they lose one of the options available to them. So in the case of rifle units, which are kind of the default bog-standard unit in the game, generally speaking, a rifle unit can move one space, attack with one die, or exert a control action. And the downgrade so far we've experienced with those soldiers is they lose one of the three actions on the card. Now, this doesn't mean the unit can't do the action anymore. It just means that when you're ordering the unit with that card, it can't do it. So if you've got it in your hand two downgraded cards, one that can't move, one that can't control, you can still move and control. Play the card that can't control to move and play the card that can't move to control. Anyway... And then you also get to upgrade two cards, and this tends to be the converse. You know, suddenly you have machine gunners who can overwatch, or suddenly you have machine gunners that attack with more dice. So far, so good. That seems fine. I, I don't expect that to fundamentally change the mechanics of the game, which is all right. The other thing that we are told will happen is that the topography of the city will change based on who controls what. So in our example, the Germans ahistorically controlled January Square in Stalingrad Pavlov's house did not become Pavlov's house because Pavlov never got there it instead it is instead Franz's house or something and this might have future consequences so in addition to being guided by specific choose your own adventure style pathing not in terms of choosing paragraphs but in terms of pathing like while well, the Germans won the scenario so next scenario is 2b we might see future uh, more things in future. I'm very curious about what might happen. Again, it's a very simple system. It doesn't need to do anything to wow me. I'm happy to sign up for whatever scenarios it wants, wants to give me. And thus far, the changes have been appropriately minimal, despite the fact of that the, 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 there's a universe of components inside the box. My one concern going in is that after the campaign is over, you might be left thinking, well, that's an awful lot of components I didn't use. Now, there's not really a whole lot of spoilers, so then I guess the idea is try it again, but then if you have the same win-loss conditions, you're not going to see new stuff. There's no way to deliberately go and see new stuff, although maybe by the end of it, I'll be a little bit more sanguine about saying, I just want to play these specific scenarios, forget the campaign system. Maybe I should already just get over that and do that now. But anyway, that is some of our subsequent experiences with
0: Undaunted Stalingrad. Yeah, looking forward to more games. I'm glad they put this set out, because, you know, people just want to play it. They have lots of other sets that they can pick up. It's this true. is definitely an interesting different turn on the system. I got to show Mark a game called Tile This is a Simone Luciani and Daniel Tazzini design. Simone Luciani and Daniela Ticini. Put out by Board and Dice. Mark, what did you think?
1: It's all right. Pretty good. I, I, I guess I'd be willing to play again. It is aggressively beige. Normally in the eurosphere we talk about things being aggressively sepia but here it's just there's there's n- just no color it's just this very pale off-white everywhere everywhere all of the board everywhere all of the player boards it is a dice drafting game where every turn to do an action you're drafting a die and the sum of the resources in action you'll do matches to 7 so you might get two resources and five actions or three actions and four resources etc and not a whole lot of player interaction. It's got the, the the kind of scoring that I initially associated with Terra Mystica, but now seems to be everywhere. The at-the-end-of-the-round score for each of these things that you've done, which is is increasingly prevalent. Uh, you know, we've seen it in a lot of different places, Barrage included. And that helped make the game feel awfully tactical. I was mostly just... You know, muttering around, thinking like, oh, okay, in turn one, I want to want to have done this. Okay, I guess I'll go do this in turn one. And then in turn two, I want to do this other thing. Okay, I guess I'll go do that. It, it was all right. I, 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 Even by the standards of these two designers, they've done much better work. The dice didn't really add much of anything interesting, I don't think. And ultimately, it was a lot of recipe fulfillment. That's where a lot of the points came from. And again, recipe fulfillment is getting a little bit overused. So these are two incredibly talented designers just playing around with other ideas that I think they've done better elsewhere. So that was my overall ex- impression of Teletum.
0: I do like some of the puzzles that you can figure out. Like if I use these two actions, I can do this. That picks up another action of a different type that I can use and sort of cycle it around and and get what you need when it doesn't seem apparent at the beginning of your turn that you get to want that you'll be able to do what you want to do, there's a
1: small horizon for combos. That's true. You pick up these tiles, and the tiles might let you do other actions, but it 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 didn't really feel very satisfying to me in terms of a combo system. It was again, it was fine. It was pretty good. Like everything else in the game it was pretty good because positive actions didn't constrain me in a particularly pressing way. I was usually able to get done more or less whatever I wanted to do. I never felt like I was under pressure. Uh, to be frank, and so I didn't feel like I was using this combo system to break free of constraints in a marvelously liberating way, and nor did I feel like the combos were stringing together particularly interesting sets of actions. So ultimately, I, I felt like I was still doing this relatively narrow horizon set of resource manipulation and recipe fulfillment. The the one aspect of of the game that might have introduced some degree of pressure is the fact that you're constantly sliding backwards on this track. It is not a very tracky track, so I didn't mind it. But everyone is sliding back at the same rate, and so whatever competition there might exist to advance on this track to score points and/or other resources is kind of just smoothed out by the fact that everyone's in the same boat. And the, uh, there is some—I con- might have some concern about how it might shake out based on how people decide to pump that track real hard at the beginning.
0: So true. It would be interesting if there was a another sort of branch of the game that m- manipulated that track. As in, like, when you went back, because you've done something else, you don't go back as far.
1: Or if you could cash presence in that track in for other things, that might expand the combo horizons. Again, not trying to redesign the game, just in no. terms of it was a relatively straightforward affair. did It wasn't over long. Uh, it wasn't a sprawling mess of disconnected mechanisms, and so no serious criticisms on that score. Just again, uh, even when compared to some of the work of the other Italian masters, I'd, I'd rather go play those games.
0: I did like, when because you're rolling the dice at the beginning of every round, and, and we were starved for some actions at the beginning of the game, so I liked how that sort of manifested itself in our game.
1: Kind of, although there is that wild
0: space which I constantly forgot existed.
1: That was just on me. I was thinking, oh, there's so few actions available for this kind of thing. Oh, well, I better grab that quickly, feeling very pleased with myself. And then immediately thereafter, on your turn, it's like, oh, okay, I'll take the wild space and do that action five times. like, oh, I guess I should have done that. (laughs) That is Teletum. We also got to go back to Green Team Wins. Green Team Wins is the party game of in-group, out-group psychology, popularity, and the fleeting nature thereof. And it has now become catchphrase territory, basically in our group. Someone will say something that seems either not particularly popular at the table, or indeed kind of shows some sort of contemptible, free-spirited independence. What's the line from Pride of Brothers? Abominable, conceited sort of independence, and we immediately say, "Oh, that's that's some orange team thinking right there." Yeah, back to your orange team. Back to orange pleb. team. We're we're the green team jocks over here. We don't abide such independence thing. It's fun. Now, I have to say, both times we've played, and I don't know why this is the case, sometimes the discussion gets very heated, and I don't know why. Like, people get very ruffled. Now, sometimes when you play... Just because the questions are so good. Yeah, but it's so strange. Like, I'll I'll give you the example of, of the one that we had from last session. Who would you rather have as a boss? Would you rather have the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman, or the Cowardly Lion? And we were all having a discussion about what kind of boss we might like and various inferences about the characters. And some people started getting really upset. I don't know why. It was it was just strange. Now, it's a good question, first of all. Although it was ruined by Dr. Contra, because Dr. Contra pointed out that they all had the thing all along, so the Cowardly Lion wasn't really a coward. The Tin Man did have a heart in the, anyway. But setting all that aside, setting game ruiners aside... <laughs> It's it's lovely fun with
0: setting the wet blanket, yeah, the fun killer.
1: And we did have a number of questions that I characterized as inside baseball that were mostly about about hobby games. You know, like worker placement, area control, or I can't even remember what the third mechanism was. Oh, there's one.
0: There's another one. but Remember the calyx? Like
1: yeah, closet Closet or calyx? Closet. (laughs) Yeah, that that was weird. And that was trying a little too hard because I mean, obviously you go with calyx. Closets are not good storage space for much of anything other than clothes at any rate i'm still having a great time with green team wins there have there have been very few questions even i might even though i might complain that there was this was heavily board game skewed there are very rarely questions that are utter stinkers so i look at it and say ah, that is a uninteresting and or b i have no basis to make this decision at all the ones that come closest are the fill in the blanks the fill in the blanks seem really hard but that's okay in, in larger groups we would have a little bit more overlap and as it is it's, it's just a question that people find very very difficult
0: so if you want to be part of the green team you should play green team wins Agreed. Hey, Mark, we agreed. We're on the green team. Sweet. Solid. Solid. I got to show Mark a game called Terracotta Army. This is designed by... Adam Krupinski and Premish Farnal. I'm very bad names. I'd like to apologize to all the designers out there. I do try my best.
1: We, we both try. We both get them wrong very often, but we try.
0: And this is another game put out by Board and Dice. This one is sort of very much a sort of manipulate puzzle, like make little combos on the board with spearmen and crossbowmen we got some specialty officers that also throw into the mix and you're scoring much like we just talked about barrage style here's your goal for this round do your best to you know get the soldiers in the right slots and then there's some end game scoring i am enjoying every playing of this terracotta army i like to you know there's different ways you can sort of play and manipulate the board mark what did you think
1: i enjoyed it It's tiling with nice components, and much of the scoring is about competing for majorities, both set arbitrarily by the round, you know, have more figures in the northwest quadrant or what have you, and at the end of the game where you have these formations of like soldiers that tend to metastasize and get bigger and bigger, threatening ever huger payouts at the end of the game. It's an interesting sort of vision of component design. I commented that it it kind of reminded me a little bit of a Kickstarter that you might see about 10 years ago, and I didn't mean that as an insult because the figures were all lovely. They came with a custom storage solution to prevent spears from bending or swords from snapping or what have you that fits inside the box and is a way to display them during play. But all the resources are just cardboard chits, and your workers are just standard meeples. and so it looks to me like the kind of thing you might have seen of, because of a more recent Kickstarter. Everything would have been blinged out to the nth degree, and in uh, pre Kickstarter days, you wouldn't have seen these in figures at all. They just would have been tiles because that's that's exactly what they were. Now, I'm not going to complain about the visual appeal of the figures, especially since, as I said, they're stored so well and they're so eff- they're they're so efficient uh, in terms of the presentation and. In- information about how many points they were worth and so forth and their special powers that's presented on the box. I have two major misgivings and they're actually giving me significant pause. One of them is the length. With a three-player game it was a solid 2 hours. I didn't feel like I was getting two hours worth of quality decisions there because essentially what you're doing is you're just plopping out a whole bunch of soldiers. The action selection mechanism is kind of clever but mostly the way we exerted control over it over the course of Terracotta Army was just to manipulate getting access to the cheap building space. I don't know if you noticed. Someone would take the cheap building space and then there would just be this cascade down the line of everyone manipulating the action wheel so that they could get to the cheap building space as well. Because that's mostly what you're doing. Like 99% of your points are going to come from your, your figure placement, which is fine. I like it when my medium weight Euros are focused rather than sprawling point salad affairs. But by the same token, if it's going to last two hours, I'd like there to be a little bit more substance there. The other concern I have is over the scoring conditions. Overwhelmingly, the scoring conditions are something along the lines of, if you have the most of something, here you get seven points. If you're there, you get three. I look at that and say, so I'm competing for the extra four points. So I placed my one guy there and I figured, do I want to keep placing more? Oh, Walker's already got three. Nah, don't bother. And this was honestly my attitude towards so many different aspects. You and Huey were competing tooth and nail over any number of things, rows, columns, formations. And it's like, "Eh, nah, I'll just put one. And so for somebody who likes being a cheapskate, it works fine, but it's the classic area majority problem. If you don't calibrate your scoring well... In a game of El Grande, you can't win by being in third place everywhere. You have to be in first place in some places, compete for second and so forth. But the scoring was so coarse. In particular, there was that in-game scoring condition, which is 13 points for first place and 6 points for just being there. That, to me, is not a 13-point prize. That's a 7-point prize. So I just snuck in under the wire with all these tokens showing up, and, and it, it did me very well. And so, consequently, I would have much preferred if I'd had more incentive to actually compete with the other players because I love Tai Leng, I love Area Majority, didn't feel like Area Majority.
0: I think they just mostly want you to be able to like plan for multiple things where, you know, if you're just competing for that one big prize, then you're not sort of spread out and dipping your hand in all the different areas. Well. Sure,
1: but prioritization questions like that are some good decision-making points sometimes in games. And I'm not saying that you could... Again, I'm not trying to redesign the game, and I'm not saying you could straightforwardly alter the scoring conditions without doing violence to some of the underlying features. What I'm saying is is that I didn't really feel a whole lot of tension of competition with my other players, because all I was doing was just pointillistically snapping up these short-term tactical goals and as a other people were working hard at maintaining majorities and I it just seemed like a bit of a sucker's gambit. Now, would that work out differently in a four player game? Probably not. Maybe, I don't know. I I I'd probably be willing to play again, but it's an awful lot of game for not a whole lot of Tid's decision making. As far as I'm concerned, I liked the earlier rounds quite a bit because in the earlier rounds where you could only build a few times and everything felt very expensive and difficult, there was sometimes this opportunity to break in and get the full seven points, and no one else was there for the three or four point second place. By the time you get to the third, fourth, fifth round, everybody's everywhere, and the marginal cost of doing of competing didn't seem worth it for the marginal point increases. That was my perspective and so, so if you chopped off the last even two rounds maybe again Changing the rest of the game without doing violence, blah, blah, blah. That might work, but then you'd have a less visually impressive set of terracotta soldiers. So I thought visually it was very appealing. Uh, Thematically, it was fine. And I like a lot of the mechanisms involved. I just, you know, the scoring and the length give me significant pause. Because
0: it wasn't very much ramp up like we like in some games, right? It's pretty well doing the same thing over and over again. Yes. The board does fill up, and sometimes there's a bit of a puzzly thing. It's like, oh, I, you know, snuck a guy in there and that, you know, connected these things together and, and that's true there some, were, sometimes it was a little rewarding then but that's a good point there, were, there was a late
1: game placement or two that was very interesting but again it was leveraging those competitions that i personally felt were a waste of waste of effort but yeah that's a good point yeah not enough though for
0: for that length
1: yeah so as i say the the earlier rounds were more interesting than the later rounds which is not the way you want to do it and is more forgivable for a 75 to 90 minute game than it is for a two-hour game
0: agreed and then there's there are all the goals will be different every game. And there's this whole master system that was sort of ignored in our game. A little bit more prevalent in the first game that we played that we oh, streamed. Okay. But, but it, hoping that comes more into future games. And that was Terracotta Army. Played a game called Paperback
1: Adventures. This is a solo kind of sort of spinoff of a game called Paperback. This is by Tim Fowers and Sky Larson of Fowers Games. And this is my third experience with Fowers Games after Now Boarding and Burgle Brothers. And so far, my experience has been that their rule books are very bad and their attitude towards components is overall charming. But in the case of Paperback Adventures, it really didn't do them any favors. So Paperback Adventures is a solo deck building game where you're attempting to spell words in an effort to defeat pulp enemies, just randomly pulled from all different kinds of uh, pulp genres. So far, so good. The problems here again are twofold. One of them again is length. This was a 90 minute solo game where all I was doing was spelling four or five letter words the entire time. I felt it got repetitive about halfway through. I would have been much, much happier if it were, if, if it were a fraction of the length. Now, this also kind of leads into the component issue that I have, which is, is, is actually a massive deal breaker as far as I'm concerned. Out of the box, I would deem paperback adventures borderline unplayable. I'm normally not the guy to complain about the functionality of components. I do so seldom. Months go by where I don't even address them at all. The components in Paperback Adventures are utterly terrible. There are these plastic trays that hold both you and your adversary, and over the course of the game, you're tracking uh, four stats which go up and down. Life and energy, especially, go up and down all the time. They're tracked with these anodized aluminum trackers that fit into slots in the plastic trays. And they are very snug. Right around round two, I found manipulating the components a huge pain. It was a source of dread every time I had to do everything. And every turn, you're like, well, I spent an energy to cost them two life. I then play the card, which does three damage to them, and then I take four damage to me, and that would be a quick turn. And every time, with the components as designed, you're supposed to pry them out of these incredibly stiff places, and then shove them into this very, very uh, stiff section.
0: And because the like plastic, probably lifted the whole thing
1: out of the box. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, gotta, you gotta brace the tray. Now, As a consequence, what you then do is, well, like, Mark, don't be such an idiot. Just don't shove it into the component. Just have it lie there. Sure, fine. But they're designed specifically to lie there, so they've got these weird chevrons. There's not room for the component to sit there easily without being shoved into the actual place, and so it rattles around and falls out. So you have to replace it with cubes. I've seen 3D-printed solutions online. Those seem marvelously functional and great. But that is you fixing a commercial product that should have been fixed by the designer. I echo the comments of many people that I've seen on Fora. I cannot believe that any human got this version, played it as it was, and thought that this was even remotely acceptable. So there's that. So if the game were half as long and I had one of those aftermarket solutions, I'd be much more favorably inclined towards paperback adventures. I think part of the intention was that the components would fit so densely into the trays so you could pack it away and then come back to it later. As it is, the components make me not want to play the game at all. <laughs> Furthermore, just as a note, we seem to be going, especially for solo games, because uh, going towards a direction that I find commercially puzzling. This isn't a criticism, just an observation. Final Girl did the same thing. You buy the base set, which is unplayable by itself. You then must buy other modules. Lots of other games would have you know, an intro module or a default set that is available in the base game. You know the way Blue Moon did it back in the day. You buy the base set, and then you can buy expansions. Uh, here, you have to start with one expansion. And I have to imagine this causes a certain
0: degree of retail confusion. It's not really an expansion, then, is it?
1: Well, it is and it isn't, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah I, I, I see what you're saying. So in the case of Paperback Adventures, you have to buy a character set in order to play the game at all. And I bought Ex Machina, which is the sort of uh, Iron Giant sort of character from 50s, era, uh, 50s 60s era pulp science fiction. And that was that was fine. The actual gameplay is is kind of cute for the first half. But again, after you've been making four and five letter words over and over and over again, the fact that sometimes the cards then get upgraded and, and, and you know, now your W does more damage than your W did before, that's fine. But it, it wasn't enough to, to get me past all six fights. You play six fights in a normal game uh, and each fight has two stages. And so that ends up being a lot of fighting. So I thought a lot of it was clever. I enjoyed a fair amount of the conceit of paperback adventures, but all told as a solo experience, 90 minutes of wrestling with not very well-designed components is not what I want. I have a personal prejudice, just to put things out on the table. When it comes time to solo games, I want relatively minimalistic sets of components that are easy to manipulate. My tolerance for moving stuff around in a solo environment plummets. Because as I constantly comment in the context of multiplayer games, many hands make for light work. You can just hand a deck to somebody and say, go shuffle this. And if you're playing a four-player game with ten decks to shuffle, that's perhaps acceptable. You're playing a solo game with six decks to shuffle, well then, that's a lot of shuffling to set up the game and to maintain it. So it is under that context that I find paperback adventures uninteresting and uh, perhaps promising disappointment. It is not one that I'm apt to go back to again, unless of course I were spontaneously to get some kind of aftermarket solution. And even then it's awfully long, but I mean, as it is, I have other games I'd rather bling out. I don't want to bling out a game just to make it functional. (laughs) I'd rather take a game that I know I really like. And there are these, 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 these great little trays all over thingiverse that I would just
0: love to have Walker. Anyway. That was Paperback Adventures. Well, we pull out Don't L-L A M A Dice. Because that's great. Like I'm I'm not understanding why it has to be written like this I know. for the English version. I know. It it seems to be okay in every other language, but for English. Don't Llama Dice, yeah. It's, it's not a- even Llama Dice. They put periods after each letter. I know,
1: I know. So they've kept the acronym, which is a German PUN, right? And now they have don't in it. So there's this English title referring to a German pun. What was whereas llama dice is just fine, it's a dice game with llamas. Why, who cares?
0: But uh, yeah, it's it's bad. It's Reiner Canizia doing push your luck in a great way. More on that later. You get to roll your dice, decide whether or not you're going to stay in the round or you're going to take a bunch of points. Points are bad, low scores are great, beginner's luck, (laughs) yeah. It's a 50 minute filler where luck of the dice can determine that you win or lose.
1: That's fine. It's, it's an enjoyable social activity. We have a good time with Llama Dice. Not the deepest game in the world, not, and not even remotely the best Reiner Knutzia push-your-luck game in the world, but definitely fast and cute. Llama Dice by Amigo. Played Robotech Reconstruction. This is a review copy we got from the designer, Dr. Witz, of Strange Machine Games. Dr. Witz is the pseudonym of the pair of Aaron Honsevitz and Austin Smokovitz. It is a coin-inspired, that is to say, the counterinsurgency series by GMT, four-player game of the period in Robotech after the first space war. So it takes place in the far future of 2013 immediately after the defeat of... Okay, Walker's is uh, just, just motioning towards the hook. Uh, he's telling me to cut it short, so I will uh, cease giving you an elaborate explanation about the differences between Robotech and Macross in this particular timeline. So, I have serious misgivings about the coin series, uh, both because of the dodgy history they often represent and of the actual game mechanisms that they have. But at the core of the coin games is an area-majority game coupled with an interesting card activation system. Now, on top of that, they usually have incredibly obtuse, almost game-destroying victory conditions. But in the case of Robotech Reconstruction, they've decided to pare it down to a much smaller, tighter experience. Small, literally. It's a small box game. It's a very, very, very small box. Yet, nonetheless, it's a two-hour coin-inspired game. The card play is very interesting. There are events that are are tied to each faction. If you play your own card, it triggers very weakly. But if somebody else plays your card, you get to do lots of stuff. And so there's the, uh, this process of cajoling other people to play in your cards. The most straightforward transactional arrangement could be, I'll play one of yours if you play one of mine. But, of course, that leads to all kinds of corner deals and difficult trade-offs and the deep-seated fear that their card might be better than yours. Which, of course, starts getting into green team wins problems. But anyway. The... Gameplay ended precipitously. It was one of those situations where everyone has to keep everyone else in check. They each have their own independent victory conditions, but it turns out that one player was secretly much closer than it looked. I had my doubts about how well-balanced the victory conditions are, but at this point, after only one game of my belt and a relatively short one, this is borderline theorycrafting, so I don't want to give voice to any of them, but suffice to say, there's a heavy degree of asymmetry as a consequence. Most factions can end up doing the Similar actions, but they do them in very, very different ways. And very much in a root style. You know, if you're playing root, chances are you have a way to start a fight. But how you start the fight is very, very different from all the all other factions. The biggest problem I had with Robotech Reconstruction, other than setting aside my strong preference for Macross over Robotech, was that the minimalistic components actually were a little bit functionally difficult to parse because you had to be able to parse the entire board state, who controls what, and they're these very small chits across uh, on top of a very very colorful board, and so quickly visually identifying who controls what area can be a bit of a pain. This is one of those areas where I might have preferred a larger box game or a couple of extra punch tokens so. That that they could have made some of the tokens larger, especially the control tokens. But I am i found it intriguing. Everyone at the table found it intriguing. The asymmetry was delightful. The kind of shared incentives that that it engendered, even sometimes amongst your nominal enemies, was very intriguing, very reminiscent of the promise of some of the coin games that, again, didn't really feel like manifested enough. Uh, there were a couple of rules errors born of a rulebook that was not particularly uh, as, as explicit as I would have liked it to have been. But everyone wanted to play again, so we're going to be in a position of playing Robotech Reconstruction again very, very shortly. I very much enjoyed it. I love asymmetric games. I love area-majority games. I love area-majority games with asymmetric goals if they are easy to parse. And again, that's one of the big difficulties I had with all of coin games. But in Robotech Reconstruction, all victory conditions are tracked at all times on a separate map. Now, keeping it up to date is tricky, but nobody ever had any questions about, well, how does this player win? And it wasn't some sort of spreadsheets like, well, if A obtains, they win with B and D. But if B, if C obtains, they actually win through this other thing, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Oh, you did like Pax Premier
1: rulebook word for it yeah, That was pretty good. Yeah, more or less. So Robotech Reconstruction, very promising. Interesting activation system, interesting background thematic matter, although it really should have been Macross. Very much looking forward to going back to it. That's by Strange Machine Games.
0: Here at SWAG, we love bag builders, so Hyperborea came to the table again. This is a very interesting bag builder where you really need to monitor how many cubes are in your bag because the reset happens at the end of your turn automatically. There's not a big sort of like round reset your bag. If at the end of your turn, your bag is completely empty. You get to reset. If it's not, you're only stuck with one or two cubes because you draw three at the end of every round. Then you're just going to get a suboptimal turn. Inefficient. Inefficient. And in this game, it's sort of like a very interesting puzzle because there's a map, Where all the different, uh, sort of cities that are on the map will give you special abilities. There's also ruins that you need to clear out from ghosts that have a limited number of special abilities. And you're trying to spread out and use your faction sort of special powers in order to gain, you know, you know, because the more territory you control, the more points you're going to get at the end of the game. There's also, you know, getting, killing one or every player gets you more points having the most cubes in your bag at the end of the game gets you points lots of things special uh, like uh round bonuses because you know we love round bonuses no they're not round bonuses they're just sort of uh goals that you will get end of game goals yeah. end of game goals which also triggers the end of the game all of these things hyperbore is always a hit whenever it's played it's one of those games like we said when we're playing it's like for some reason it's hard to get to the table but as soon as it's there it is enjoyed by all thoroughly.
1: Yeah, Huey in particular mentioned. You know, people suggest Hyperborea, or it's presented. Yeah, okay, whatever. And the moment it gets set up, at the moment, especially the moment you start taking the first couple turns, it's like, oh yeah, I remember how great this is. Uh, fortunately, I am able to remember how great it is, and so I'm usually one of the ones pushing Hyperborea. And I, I said at the beginning of my rules explanation. Part of the challenge of Hyperbore is keeping a balanced economy because you have the cubes in your bag and you have all the, they call them technologies, but they're not really technologies, all the abilities that they're powering. And if you have an imbalance between the two, you're not going to be running a very efficient economy. You're not going to be able to do as many cool things as you otherwise would. The map setup was interesting. The map setup led to a number of players, uh, primarily uh, you, Dewey, and myself, having a large number of cubes, a larger number of cubes than normal. But that increased the challenge of making sure that you had the text to back that up. Otherwise, you end up in situations where your cubes are just points that are hampering your economy, hampering your ability to do things, which is not ideal, which is a classic deck builder slash bag builder conundrum. I, and I agree with you. Our experience with Hyperborea, it was one of those just near perfect gaming sessions. You know, It was people around the table who were among my very favorite to play board games with. It was you, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. A game that I adore and that I played a number of times before. And on top of that, it is a game that by virtue of our fondness for it has led to a whole bunch of in-jokes that add to the experience of playing the game. We have we've introduced a, a joking house rule that the actual winner of so there's the person with the most points. Sure, fine, whatever. Yeah, good job, try hard. Yeah, whatever. The actual winner of the game is the one who's a who's accumulated the best menagerie because the tech cards that you purchase, many of them. The world isn't very fleshed out of Hyperborea, but many of them have bizarre creatures like flying manta rays or weird dinosaurs or multi-horned quadrupeds pulling... Anyway, just, just a tech card that says wagons that lets you move around the map might have some bizarre fantastical beast attached to it, which is a lovely little flourish and has allowed us to have this bizarre little house rule. So we were able to appreciate the game on a thematic level, which probably outstrips the game's actual thematic chops. Anyway, I had a blast playing Hyperborea. I don't pretend to be objective. I've loved the game for years, ever since it was published. It is my favorite iteration of Bag Builder. I think it's mechanically clever. The one misgiving that I have about Hyperborea is that the various... Uh, factional powers don't seem to be particularly well balanced across each other, but the game is of such quality that I don't really care. I'm very glad that there was a specialized reprint of the expansion that was, that allowed the expansion to be more easily available to North American buyers. It was just a small labor of love because prior to that, you could only get it imported from Italy, which I did at considerable expense, mostly just for the white and black cubes. But Again, this was another instance of you know you play the game, everyone enjoys it. it's like yeah yeah we need to play this again real soon, so we probably will.
0: I need to embrace that expansion because I don't think I've ever because it's like you can use white cubes here but not here, and black cubes here not there. It's like oh that's too confusing. It's not that bad. I, I know. I'm just saying <laughs> how my you know I'll just enjoy the game how I enjoy it, but I really should. Sort of fully embrace this expansion and try to get the most out of it. I, I think it's an
1: interesting trade-off because it gives you economic flexibility at the cost of in-game points. Which, in your particular case, might have been for the good. Because you had a lot of cubes. It's true. That was Hyperborea by Andrea Chiesvesio and Pierluca
0: Zizzi. Mark was nice enough to introduce Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game to me and others. And this is put out by Bean Bean Studios. This is a review copy we got from the designer. So you're sort of making a movie production. You're creating these scenes. You're given a sort of template of what these certain notes you have to hit in this movie. And then you're given some dice and actions that these dice activate. And then you have to do it before you run out of time and or money. We had a bit of a concern because... uh, Thematically,
1: it makes perfect sense. You lose when you run out of money or time. But in effect, this is a very minor niggle, you have to end with $1. You can't spend all your budget because then you immediately lose. I felt this was desperately thematic.
0: You have to have a cast party at the end, of the, right? You have to have some money left for that.
1: Is there always a cast party? I think so. Lots of the productions I was in didn't have cast parties. Are you saying they just didn't invite
0: Ooh. me? Awkward. Ooh. So, yes. I, it was it was perfectly fine if people wanted to play it. I would. I just I didn't find the actions interesting enough. Fair enough. The the dice were you know you roll the dice you get your things you get all sorts of things that you manipulate the dice to get what you need. But then, just the actions themselves just seem. <laughs>
1: I agree with you for the most part. I I, I do enjoy how you have a little spatial puzzle about how to orient your dice to satisfy the scene requirements. So you have to build the infrastructure in the form of sets that can accommodate the dice that have to be laid there to satisfy scene requirements. That, I think, is the most interesting use of the fundamental action element of the game. Part of me was, this is the fourth time I've played Roll Camera now, and I I still enjoy it. I think it's a fabulous, lightweight, cooperative game. Uh, But the pressure introduced by the problems that get introduced effectively it never seems like it's worth it to let them fester normally there's a trade off between dealing with them right away or letting them hang around and then they're more difficult to solve later In practice, you mostly just solve them right away, and so effectively what that means is you're down a couple of dice every round, and so it it, it limits your your, your freedom to truly play around with it. If there were some devil's bargains that that made it more tempting to let the problem stick around, to make it more superficially appealing so there's more of a trade-off that might indeed increase the, the, the pressure later, I think that would be nice, but as it is... It was uh, very well calibrated. We ended with the we ended on the last turn with exactly one dollar left in our budget, and we played with the B Movie expansion, which introduces uh, charming little tokens. So after we film a scene with like three robot heads, uh, we ha- we have to ask, okay, wh- which is the robot? In scene one, it was the cactus that was the robot, which I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> it I I, I I'll, I'll repeat what I said when we talked about it last time on the show. I think roll camera gets by a lot on its charm the problems are all very funny Uh, the idea cards are all very funny solutions the art is very evocative of these little bean things i think they're supposed to be beans they're either acting out scenes and emoting their hearts out or running around solving various problems and like it's a game where you can hire a bunch of monkeys to be a film crew to film scenes on the on the off hours it's hard not to be charmed by a game of that tone but I agree with you, the, the fundamental driver of the action selection, less engaging than it could have been.
0: Yeah, and on top of that, it is a cooperative game, and because what you need to do is so evident, and there's not very much hidden information, it leads into the quarterbacking and or alpha gaming a little bit more, yes. because it's obvious we need to do this, there's a scene that we need, so, oh, you rolled the dice that you need, then then can you can you do that? <laughs> can you do it's that true. action now? It's sir. But, like I said, it... It's perfectly fine, very charming, very fun, accessible game. That was Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game by Malachi Ray Rempen and Keen Bean Studios. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Magnet alert. I'm of the opinion that more board games need to have magnets. I think all games should have magnets if they possibly can. Have I stolen a news article? I think so. <laughs> Irgarten der Magier, Magician's Maze by Wolfgang De Sherrill and Wolfgang E. Lehmann. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> So, it is a co-op game. Uh, the rest of the details don't matter to me. There's a maze. There's a magician who needs to get through the maze. Who cares? There's a magnet that suspends a dangling magi- uh, magician, and one player grasps the top of the magnet, and the other player grasps the magician underneath. The, 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 the magnet is connected to the string, to connected to the ma- uh, the magician, separated by a transparent plastic panel. You have to move them together.
0: I, it, yeah, it's a like, dexterity element yeah, with magnets you, what, do you, what else could you possibly want it's like a recipe for fulfillment type thing it's like okay we need to hit these four points so you have like a little discussion and then you, then you both have to start moving in unison Yep. because it's such a light connection and there's it's, a little plastic timer that it comes with and yep. if someone doesn't move right then it's going to detach and the poor yep. little wizard is going to fall what I love because it must be a metal star so I hope it's like I think at
1: the top, the magic... It's called a magic button. and That could be a translation thing.
0: And so I'm hoping it's a metal star that hits it from the magnet at the top and it's just raw metal because then you can sharpen it, right? <laughs> and so you get, you get penalized if it falls. Let's
1: let's not do that, no. Oh.
0: <laughs> anyway, it seems very charming and I can't wait to give it a try.
1: Yep. Magnets, of dexterity, co-op game. What else do you want? Magician's Maze. News from Andrew Parks. Andrew Parks is a designer that... Well, we keep wanting to like him more than we actually do. We adore Core Worlds. The rest of his output has been varying shades of disappointment. But Andrew Parks is going to be reworking Eric Goldberg's classic Tales of the Arabian Knights into something called Tales of the Arthurian Knights. Seems natural. You see what they did there with Knightswalker? I see that. They put a K in front of it. Now it's a different word.
0: I tried that. It didn't work. And Green Team wins. <laughs> It, d- it didn't get the chuckles I was hoping for.
1: Yeah, because you were supposed to put a word, not just a letter oh. in front. Anyway. Tales of the Arabian Nights was a classic, but it wasn't really heavy on what we you might call the choices or control. There is evidence to suggest that in Andrew Park's reworking of the fundamental system, he might have attempted to inject a little bit more... Determinativeness into the design. I really enjoy the Arthurian legends, at least in some versions. We'll see what his take is like. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with it. That is Andrew Parks'
0: Tales of the Arthurian Knights. Lastly, for me, Isle of Sky. Mark, you know, I love Isle of Sky, and I finally got all the expansions, everything together. So you know what that means? It means they have to now put out a big box. <laughs> About that time, yeah. So they have a big box now. And of course, it has expansions that you can't get anywhere else except for the big box. So now oh! That I've, now that I've bought this other stuff, now I'm going to have to buy the big box, so I get the... The special Walker Buys Twice edition. Exactly. How nice. Um, Well, it's not going to have the Journeyman expansion in it, but it's w- going to wait, have this... Wait, what? But it is going to have the other large expansion, the Druids expansion, I believe it's called. But it's also going to have one called the Borderlands expansion, which seems kind of interesting. It has tiles that you start the game with. Uh, I think six tiles, but they only have two flat sides. The rest is sort of like a rough border. Mm-hmm. And then when you play your normal tiles, you have the opportunity to put these border tiles on the outside. And of course, once you've put them there, you can't build any more because sure. there's no flat sides. Seems kind of interesting. Hopefully, somehow, maybe it's going to be Kickstarter. It was sort of not very clear. I'm not sure if Lookout Games have had Kickstarters in the past. But anyway, let's hope that that expansion is available separately.
1: Two final bits of So Very Wrong About Games news. This is going to be the last week of our end-of-year swag survey in the increasingly erroneously named end-of-year swag survey. There are questions, prizes, glory. Please help us plan for the future. We've had a lot of great responses so far. Very, very helpful. And we are in the early stages of crunching some of the results, but we are not going to finalize the tabulations until we have finalized the submissions. This is going to be the last week. You can find a link on Facebook, on Twitter, and indeed in the episode notes. Thank you very, very much to those who've already participated. We appreciate it. And if you have the time, please go contribute to help planning Swag's future. It's very brief. Finally, this is an episode which is a multiple of five, which is the brief time when we bend your ear about our Patreon. We don't like plugging the Patreon because we don't enjoy content that's endlessly talking about their own merchandising opportunities and various ways that you can smash this button or crush this other button or macerate this other hit button. that like button yeah. go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review yeah 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 yeah, yeah. we don't like to do that but uh, we're very proud of our Patreon content every week there's bonus content we have a whole bunch of Patreon exclusive shows like Bloat like Pledge of Indifference we also have lots of other benefits such as giving away free games we also have a Patreon exclusive Discord which is a marvelous community a number of people respond in the uh in the the survey how much they loved the Patreon-exclusive Discord. And rest assured, anything we do in the future is always calibrated towards delivering more value to our Patreon subscribers. It occurs to me the Patreon's been open now for three years, and we've never increased our prices, despite the fact that inflation has been, so we say, rather potent. And we do depend on uh, support from the patrons to keep the show going. So if you want to check us out on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash S-V-W-A-G. We would appreciate it. And you won't be hearing about that for another month. So, that is the
0: news, and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our main review, which is Beowulf the Legend.
1: Beowulf the Legend was designed by Rainer Knitzia and published by Cosmos in 2005. It is important to situate it because there's, there's a fair amount of controversy and divisiveness with respect to Beowulf in Reiner Knutzia's overall heritage. When talking about his big box, quote unquote, hobbyist games, people often talk about 1997's Tigers and Euphrates, 2000's Taj Mahal, more on that later, 2003's Amun Re. The pedigree of Beowulf the Legend, I think, is more properly associated with 2002's Clash of the Gladiators. Namely, big box games that Knizia fans hate. Because a lot of Knizia fans hate Beowulf the Legend, just as they hate Clash of the Gladiators. Whereas, I love them both. And, I think it's also, when talking about Knizia, you can't really situate his work overall. You should better talk about things that he did in the years immediately before and immediately after. Otherwise, it just gets too long. So, in 2004, he released Blue Moon. Also Ingenious, two excellent games. A lot of people associate the early aughts with Canizia's alleged decline. I have yet to see evidence of Canizia's alleged decline. I think it's just compared to his output of the late 90s. You know, you put out Raw and Tiger's Euphrates and Through the Desert with a couple years of each other. All other years are going to look disappointing by comparison. But uh, in the same year as Bale of the Legend, he put out Picomino, which is a fabulous filler. The year after that, he put up Blue Moon City. A couple years after that, he won the SDJ with Celtus, which then became redesigned as Lost Cities, the board game. I don't think I've ever talked about that game. I, I adore it. I think it's a fabulous, lightweight, competitive evolution of the fundamentally solid Lost Cities board game. I could keep talking about Knitsy's output forever, but uh, even in the past five years, he's designed Quest for Alvarado, Yellow the Blue Lagoon, Babylonia, My City, and Whale Riders. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what Beowulf the Legend is?
0: Well, the theme sure checks all the boxes in the Beowulf bingo. (laughs) But unless Beowulf made all of his life decisions based on some sort of random sage cards or... Or or, or omen deck or he lost a bunch of bets with his friends, then not so much theme in this game. This is very much of... Reiner Knizia says, you want to press your luck game here, hold my beer... Between managing your hand and keeping your wounds in check and knowing when to get out of auctions, this game comes at you at so many angles about managing stuff and pressing the limits of what you need to do to win. It is very interesting, and I would play it anytime. Okay, so let me push back a little bit. I think Beowulf the Legend is
1: simultaneously among the most stereotypical of Euro themelessness, as well as... About as good as you're gonna get of adapting a famous piece of historical literature. All right. In the one hand, you're not playing as Beowulf. Beowulf isn't even in the game. You're one of Beowulf's pals trying to impress Beowulf, right? Yeah, but
0: doing what? Come on, let's be serious. You're- yeah. Okay. okay let's all be right. serious, right? So okay. So I, I've I've acknowledged the way in which it's incredibly stereotypical. Sure. Hero, there, right? There's very nice pictures on the on the thing, and they've written out sure. You know the story in 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 the proper order. Sure. Yeah. 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 You yeah. hit you hit all the major notes. Yeah. Here's
1: the thing. Beowulf, in terms of being a great warrior, a great king of the... Okay, have you read Beowulf? No. Okay. I've read the translation by uh, Maria Devana Headley, which I think is fabulous. It's really, really cool in a lot of ways. Her choices are fascinating, and I think it's a great, great uh, uh, modernization of the version. And I don't mean modernization in the sense of, you know, using contemporary idioms, but... She does that too, but modernization in the sense that she seeks to play with language in the same way that the original did. But anyway, setting all that aside, what it was to be a great warrior was to be fundamentally a risk taker, to accumulate wounds, to be there, to be in the action longer than your buddies, to be the one who is willing to stand up to the dragon and possibly get breathed in the face. Like, what is it to be a sort of pre-medieval old English warrior than to accept risks for the sake of glory? And that's what the game is. So, what else do you want? Okay. Seriously. All right. I, 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 I'm not saying it's the most thematic game ever designed, no. but what I'm saying is, is that if you want to capture the essence of what's going on in Beowulf, you can drown them in flavor text, and you can have a whole bunch of, like, this is the tactical scenario where Grendel has a movement rate of three, and Beowulf has a movement rate of four, and blah, 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 blah. And then nobody, but nobody, would complain about the thematic integration because there was a little figure of Grendel and a little figure of Beowulf, and you move three squares, and blah, blah, blah. No, this is about risk-taking. This is about impressing your friends. This is about recognizing that how good you can brag at the feast afterward is sometimes as important as how good you can tear off a monster's arm. I think there's a f- it does a fine job of evoking the feel of a lot of the tales of exploits and daring do of some of these let's be let's be frank hard cases.
0: I think you do a much better job invoking theme in this game <laughs> than this game does. How's that? Alright, fine. Call it call it an assist. <laughs> there you go. So what you're doing you're going to see like there's thirty-six different spots on this board. It's a linear sort of path that you're taking. There's thirty-six stops on this on this journey to the end and you're constantly trying to manage your hand because you're going to go through a variety of minor and major and all these different events and they all need different card requirements. And so you're deciding on which ones are most important to you or, or you're forced to pick up cards because you've spent too much on other things.
1: Like a lot of other Mass for games, you have a lot of the same kind of choices that other heavier games sometimes seek and fail to have, but you have in spades in, in Beowulf the Legend. Long-term versus short-term trade-offs, right? It, it, dovetailing with the hand management. You look at the little train, and we were doing this all the time, it's like, when's the next time I need boats? It's a ways off. When's the next time I need axes? Oh, next encounter. Ugh, all right. Do I go for the boats? Do I go for the axes? How good's my hand? Is it good enough to weather the next event? Should I start planning for that event further ahead? Those trade-offs are just one of the many things that that the way that everything's set out at the beginning. You know everything that's going to happen over the course of the game is as Big Daddy B, as I sometimes call him. We're, we're on a very, very close basis. Big Daddy B wins his way over the course of the events all the way to his untimely death spoilers. And you don't dance with dragons; it's not a good idea. And so you have this this constant challenges. Your hand is whittling down, and wondering if you can make it past the next. Uh, just the 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 ability to plan long term in a game this light and simple, I think, is massively done through that track, which is the entire board, which is it's the entire game.
0: True. So the, the two the two there's major events, and there's the two major auctions. I think one is definitely more interesting than the other. One is just a blind. Agreed. Bed. Uh blind bid with some bluffing, they say. And, uh, in the game, at least in the game we had, it was yes, not very evident of the blind bid.
1: Well, it, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a jerk move during the blind bidding section to wait for everyone else to put down the cards say, How many cards did you put down? How many cards did you put down? How many nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be that person. And so as a consequence, we don't look at what other people are playing, we just decide what we're playing. The biggest problem I also have with the blind bidding, so Beowulf the Legend is a two to five player game. Some people refuse to play it with less than five. I'm not one of these people. I've happily played it with three. Three's pushing it, I think. I wouldn't play it with two. I happily play it with four or five. But as a consequence, when you're talking about a game with a scarcity of cards and four or five people are blind bidding, frequently the winner will have bid three or four. Ties are extremely common. And so where you happen to be sitting in relation to the start player, because that's how ties are broken, tends to be very, very determinative. Now... It's not as bad as it could be because, again, it features into when you want to spend your resources. If I'm sitting directly to the left of the start player, I know I can go in and get something out of the encounter.
0: If I'm sitting to the right of the start player, mm, better keep my powder dry, save it for later. So this is how they sort of like not really catch up mechanism, but keep things sort of even because if you lost the previous sort of encounter you get to be the start player. Well, if you came in last, because again, there's
1: we put it in terms of winning and losing frequently, but I think that's oversimplifying things because typically an encounter will have as many results as there are players. Sometimes they're all positive. Sometimes there's a mix of positive and negative, And sometimes the threshold between positive and negative can be very, very, very sharp. For example, if you're bragging about how well you faced down Grendel, they're all positive results, and the distance between the worst result and the best result is significant but not huge. On the other hand, if you're fighting a dragon, the difference between the one that done killed the dragon and the one that done got the dragon breath in the face, massive.
0: So the other kind of major event is the climbing bid. So you're playing these cards, you're constantly increasing the bid. You can only play cards to bring you up to par where everybody else is. And then it goes back to the starting player. They have to increase it or you have to bow out. And then when you bow out, you take the lowest number that's available when you go to pick your prizes at the end. And this is where the more interesting gameplay took place, because while you're trying to increase your bid, you can risk. And you draw two cards off the top of the deck. They have to match what is being bid. One of them does. One of them has to match what's being being bid. And if they don't. Not only do you take a wound, but you're also out of that round of bidding. So if you were gambling, you had the cards you needed, but you just wanted to stay in the round later on. You wanted to just, you know, try to supplement your deck with these free cards. And so there's that really, it is a huge decision space there. You're like, okay, well, this round, I'll just play cards on my hand. Next round, I'm going to do the gambling. I really enjoyed.
1: I really enjoy it too. And this is where a lot of the controversy comes in. A lot of people argue that Beowulf the Legend is far too determined by luck, and I strongly disagree, because to my mind, the key issue is not whether or not you succeed in your risks. It's are you risking when you can afford to lose? So the way the wounds work in the game, is we, there are scratches and wounds, we call them in our games, punches, punches to the face and kicks to the teeth. If you get your third scratch, that turns into a wound. Scratches ain't no thing. You can get rid of them really easily. Wounds.
0: Wounds are bad. I have that uh, written right here.
1: (laughs) Yes, they are infinitely worse. And so as a consequence, if you're risking when you have two scratches... You have to accept the fact that you have a very, very, very small margin for error. And you probably, I'm not going to say you should never do it, but your threshold for willingness to risk should be much, much higher. On the other hand, if you're routinely in a position where you've managed your cards well and you've managed your, your, uh, your scratches well, you can risk with relatively no consequences all the time. And I think that a lot of people think back on games where somebody just seemed to be luckier because they kept risking all the time and ended up winning Well, that's because they could afford to, usually. I can't remember. I played the game well over a dozen times. I really can't remember more than maybe one or two encounters where somebody won when they quote-unquote should not have, right, under a straightforward probabilistic analysis. In our last game that we played and we streamed, I was involved in a contest with Warm Boy, and the the difference between first place and second place was determined purely by who got better pulls off the top of the deck from risking. That's fine. Like that le- that level of margin I'm okay with. I thought I had a card advantage going into it. It turns out I didn't. Turns out we were roughly equal in terms of card advantage. So the the winner was determined by
0: risking. Okay, sure. And then like you said it's just first and second and the yeah. difference between that is is negligible because that's another thing you can sort of wager into your determine right. whether you're going to start risking or not, because if two, people Precisely. Are, if two people are already out, then that's another way you're not going to lose very much. It's like, yep. oh, well, you know, why am I going to waste cards out of my hand and, and be, you know, short, for the rest of the game when I can just risk it. I'm still going to get third, which is fine. Exactly. Especially when you can deal with the, with the wounds that, that
1: accumulate. If it makes the difference between zero points and minus 15 points and you're risking all the time, well, you're asking for trouble. I don't think I've ever seen anyone play that recklessly and profit as a consequence. If I did routinely, then yeah, the game I would probably feel too luck-driven for me. But as it is overwhelmingly, it's more about the people who are clever about knowing when to risk than about the determinations of the risk, and therefore I'm perfectly okay with it. It adds an element of tension and an element of drama, especially when the stakes are relatively low.
0: So procedurally, it adds a great deal of interest to to what's going on. And what you're going to win is victory points or these specialty cards, which have all sorts of symbols on them or will mitigate, you know, wounds that you're going to take or let you draw more cards as more than normal. Lots of interesting stuff there. Oh, you gold. Gold is another interesting sub-element. Yeah, gold. Because there's also... Oh, you didn't like the gold? I, I do. Well, I just... I don't mind it. Because a lot of times... At, this is yet another bidding. Another yeah. space will come up, and you'll say, no, start bidding gold, much like you bid uh, with the cards. And because you when you take gold, you have to take specific counters. Yeah, no change in Beowulf the Legend ever. And I just found... Normally in Beowulf, you either ha- you have a one and a three. A lot of times, <laughs> this is the gold. So someone you know starts the bid with one. Someone raises to three, and then that's how it shook out. Definitely in our last game, but two gold is the amount of gold you get if
1: you take gold from the regular reward space. Just r- regularly, it's not all pain in in Beowulf. And a lot of the spaces, it's just. Take your pick of some goodies. Here, have a couple cards. Here, have a couple cards, or a scroll, or some gold, or two points, or what have you. Or get rid of your scratches.
0: So, yeah. So the gold would get to a point, and then you know you couldn't bid higher because a you didn't have it, or you didn't want to waste. You know- oh, the auctions are much shorter. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. And then you get your bonus. But then it usually was sort of, is this my turn to win the gold auction? Because only the loser, only the winner pays. Mm -hmm. And then you have your your gold next time. It's like, well, everyone spent their gold. So I guess this is the time I'm going to win the gold auction.
1: That's right. Or again, you should look forward to the end of the game and realize whoever has the most gold is going to get five points. Maybe I should just hold on to it to the end.
0: That's true. Then there's all the minor events, which is mostly building your hand back. It's sort of like there's menus where you pick your bonus, you can get victory points, you can get rid of some scratches or wounds. Or, or
1: if in the you're in the extremely uh, enviable position of having more than enough cards, sometimes you can trade
0: in cards for extra goodies. Mm-hmm. I, I rarely take advantage of those because I'm usually too desperate to hold on to what I got. And then there's the big recovery where you put out, you know, two times the number of players and cards and everyone drafts more cards to their hand. So... The reason
1: why, uh, let me return back to something I said during the intro. There's a, probably the one hobbyist game of Reiner Knizia, or at least certainly his most well-regarded game that I do not enjoy, is called Taj Mahal. And for years, I've been making the point that Beowulf the Legend and Taj Mahal are very, very, very similar to each other. Taj Mahal is a series of fights in which you either play a card or drop out. And you, dr- when you drop out, you will get some benefits if you are leading at the time. Beowulf the Legend, similarly, is a question of, you know, play a card or drop out and you benefit from staying in longer. The trick with Taj Mahal that I don't enjoy as much is, for one thing, I feel that the scarcity is just a couple of steps further than I like. I like games to be tense. I like resource management to be challenging. But then there are some games where I feel like I'm starving all the time. In the case of Taj Mahal, I really do feel like I'm starving. Furthermore, in Beowulf, again, pointing to the example of me and Warm Boy, we got into just a game of chicken near the end for who is going to get first or second. Sometimes the game of chicken is between third and fourth. Sometimes it's between fourth and fifth, what have you. But when you get into a game of chicken, it's costly. And often everyone else at the table is laughing at you, which is fine. But you have some control about bowing out. And still getting something out of it. In Taj Mahal, I've seen far too many games of chicken where you didn't know you were wandering into a game of chicken, and you get nothing out of it. I once heard it described by somebody, I'm afraid I can't give the attribution, it was just a comment on Board Game and I don't recall who it was. It's a game of chicken where you can't control when you get into fights, and everyone who fights loses. And that is honestly my experience with Taj Mahal. Now, maybe that's just because I'm stupid. Maybe because I'm just not a good enough player at Taj Mahal to see all the, the subtle nuances. And I'm, and I'm glossing over lots and lots and lots of differences. But I have to hope that there are people out there like me who found Taj Mahal a little too restrictive and a little bit too costly to get into fights but wanted the same kind of push-your-luck, risk-taking feel. Beowulf the legend is the answer to that. And it, uh, I just it, it's, it's the version of Taj Mahal that I find fun,
0: suffice to say. Yeah, I think it sets up very easily, easily, easily taught. And as soon as you get, you know, as soon as someone understands how an auction works, easily followed, you just move the pawn through the different stages. You can walk people through it. You can just pretty well start the game. You wouldn't even have to teach the game. You can just say, "Okay, now we're going to do this type of auction." Now you get to buff your deck more. And as soon as they see how the auctions work, they'll understand why they need certain cards in their hand or why they shouldn't risk when they should risk. Has an interesting board. It only has, you know, has this big, you know, quarter of it missing. Don't see that much in in, in board true. games. It gives it a different feel. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, the table presence is not negligible as a consequence. Yeah. It is an excellent press-your-luck auction game from a designer who is the past master at push-your-luck in auctions. It doesn't feel at all like Raw, despite the fact that Raw is also a push-your-luck auction game. And I would argue it has more thematic co- coherence than people give it credit for. I would also argue it is more deterministic than people give it credit for. And it is it has been in my top 20 for a very, very long time. I am a massive fan of Beowulf the Legend. It is sadly out of print and also sadly underappreciated, even and perhaps especially by the Knitsia
0: fanish community. That's what I had at the beginning. You said it was put out by Cosmos, but it was also published by Fantasy Flight Games here. uh, Yeah. North America. In North America, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was saying, you know, know, back when they, you know, put out, you know, original interesting games. (laughs) Unlike now, at, at first I thought it was a joke, and then I went to their website, and now they have Arkham Horror. Or Marvel, the collectible card game. Yeah. One or the other. Well, don't forget forget Twilight Imperium. Yeah, Twilight Imperium. (laughs) It's very sad. It is. It's a sad state of affairs. They also
1: distributed Tribune, another top 20 euro uh, favorite of mine.
0: Back in the before times. In the before times.
1: Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your support and your time a great deal and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced <laughs> by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song FOS as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at SoVeryWrongAboutGames at gmail.com or on Twitter at SoWrongGames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right. But remember, you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein,